The idea that plagiarism is a problem is not a problem with the students, it's a problem with the instructional design. Now I think, and history has shown us, that the youth is very good at identifying what the challenges and problems in society are, better than the adults. So really the design question is, how are we connecting students and teachers across time and space? Uh, and I think this is really going to be the next innovation. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and today we have a wonderful guest on our show, Dr. Trevor Saponis. Many of you will recognize Trevor from his very active presence on social media, where he always shares thoughtful articles, reviews, and insights on the world of education and social relations. Trevor and I had a wonderful conversation about the world of education, the opportunities that should be seized, the ability and willingness to move from traditional based assessment systems to authentic learning projects where impact is what really matters to what's going on in the streets today and the Black Lives Matter movement. Trevor started his journey in education teaching English and journalism courses at an alternative high school in Queens, New York. And after continuing to teach at several education nonprofits supporting college access initiatives, he transitioned to district level work for the New York City Department of Education. As a director of university partnerships, he improved new teacher training programs by developing a blended model of teacher support. He received his doctorate from New York University in teaching and learning with research focused on environmental education for urban youth. And currently, as I mentioned, he operates his own education consulting company, the Sustainable Learning Project, which focuses on developing project-based learning opportunities for kids around the country. Now, I wanted our listeners to know that we might be a little bit irregular in terms of putting out podcasts from now on. We decided this week that it was time to leave Saudi Arabia, given the changing situations here uh, and the need to move on to uh, new adventures. It means we're living out of suitcases, means we have to navigate a rather complex situation in terms of international travel. But this is exactly what we talk about when we say we need to prepare our kids for the unpreparable for things that are completely unpredictable. And I know that I'm trying to involve my children as much as possible in, if not the planning, at least decision-making process. So they see that we can't always get what we want. And sometimes we have to figure out ways to get around obstacles that we didn't foresee. This means that the quality of the broadcast might not be uh, what it was in terms of the audio, but I hope you'll be patient and uh, we will hopefully get uh, all our equipment soon. I also wanted to thank everybody for um, your continued listening and uh, put a little bit of a disclaimer in terms of this conversation. As I mentioned, I'm in Saudi Arabia. I haven't lived in the United States for uh, several years now. And unfortunately, I'm a little bit out of touch with what's going on on the ground. I'm a little bit naive. I'm very open to all kinds of thoughts and learning about what's going on with the Black Lives Movement, but I am not exposed to it directly since I have not lived in countries that have um, experienced the movement. So my point is that I don't want to offend or otherwise brush people the wrong way if I post questions that might be really out of naivete more than anything else. And like with everyone as a learner, I want to speak to as many people as possible to get as many views as possible in order to advance my own uh, thoughts and uh, positions and, and learning. But in the meantime, I will leave it here and make way for my conversation with Trevor. 
Hi, Trevor. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Um, really looking forward to our conversation and hearing about some of the things that you've been doing. But uh, first, if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself, uh, who you are, what you've been doing, and, and what's on your mind recently. Thank you, Benjamin, so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Trevor Saponis. I am the founder and chief learning officer of the Sustainable Learning Projects, which is an educational consulting firm uh, dedicated to working with schools, districts, and states on addressing the fundamental environmental problems of our time. Um, right now, uh, I am in Portland, Oregon, and last night was the 13th day of overwhelmingly peaceful protests. Um, and right now, here, we're really dealing with two pandemics, uh, COVID-19, obviously, and a long overdue reckoning around racism in America. And it is uh, challenging and wild and exciting, and I'm hopeful around the potential for change in this moment. One of the things that really interests me about some of the work that you're doing in terms of sustainability is some of the overlaps in terms of what's going on, as you mentioned, these two pandemics. Of course, the health pandemic and the way we interact with our environments, but also the pandemic of racism, which is about how we interact with other human beings. How does the work that you do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and maybe over the longer term bring all of these same uh, struggles together about living and coexisting with our fellow humans, animals, and the environment? I've always understood my work as whether I was a classroom teacher, which I was for a number of years, whether I worked at the district level or whether I helped states with policies as an effort to reimagine education. Right now, we have an educational system that does not engage students on the fundamental level. We have parceled out thinking from doing. And at a fundamental level, I want students to be engaged in changing the world today, not tomorrow, not in some future, but in engaging them in doing something that is going to transform both people and the planet right now. And so what kind of projects does your organization carry out to, to make this happen in the classroom and maybe in the community? I think the best example of uh, the work that I'm doing right now is that in Alaska, with a district that I'm working with, we are rewriting their biology curriculum and transforming it into a place-based marine biology curriculum that operates a seaweed and shellfish farm. The seaweed and shellfish farm is going to accomplish a number of things, everything from actually feeding the local community during the shoulder season between the salmon and the herring harvest, as well as operate as a college and career readiness activity where students will be able to engage in an actual business that not only provides for local needs, but eventually will exist to the scale that they'll be able to sell some of the seaweed and shellfish. So it's a really exciting project. And I think that really exemplifies having students, A, do something, and then B, have it rooted in a place in their community to serve uh, their community members and themselves. So this is an example where it's sustainability from a, a science, natural, environmental point of view, but also from a community point of view, a socioeconomic point of view. And I can imagine if it's a, if it's a small village, uh, are there, is there a large population of indigenous um, uh, peoples or, or, or what kind of, what's the demographics there? 
It is. It is. It's actually the only native uh, Alaskan reservation in the state. It's a, a really interesting history. Um, uh, it's a small island off Ketchikan named Annette Island. And uh, they have a, a very interesting tribal history. And so they have um, a longstanding treaty with the United States government that allows them to continue fishing on their ancestral lands. Um, unfortunately, when you have a declining salmon harvest and a declining herring harvest, um, they are in desperate need, as are many Alaskans, to expand their economy. And so this is a real intentional step towards a regenerative rather than an extractive economy. And one of the questions that I intend to ask every single guest is um, uh, really, what does learning mean to them? What is their definition of learning? And in this particular context, for you, how will you know that the students who are participating in this project are learning? How do you, I don't want to use the word assess or measure because those are, those are such uh, uh, words that have such baggage, but how do you know that they're learning? Absolutely. So for me, learning is the ability to understand and, and it's a very important and, impact the world around you. Um, and I think that our, the current state of education in America and certainly the world is that we've divorced those two things. Um, so we can have students who read Shakespeare, but they don't write their own plays. We can have students who are climate literate but aren't actually doing anything to address climate change. We can have students understand how governments operate, but we don't have them engaging in changing the policies to benefit themselves and the planet. And so this fundamental divide is the fundamental problem that I'm trying to address with my organization and really represents my understanding of how learning actually works. Now you're you're very active on LinkedIn and and on other social media platforms, and you know the articles that you share are are tremendously interesting, and and there's certainly themes around exactly what you've just said. And my question to you is, why do you think that school districts uh, or independent schools have such trouble making that association between learning and action slash impact? And and they do rely so much on this idea that you know if you can if you can recite Shakespeare or if you can talk about a, a few sonnets here and there, um, you're, you're learning and this is effective for the future? It's a great question. And I think that like many of our answers, it's rooted in history. The structure of school does not serve us right now. Life is interdisciplinary and school subjects are not. Um, and that puts us at a fundamental disadvantage. So the idea that, uh, English is separated from, right, basically communication is separated from civics. Communication is separated from science. All of these concepts, and certainly in any workplace, are interdisciplinary, but our schools are not set up that way. Um, you know, particularly here when I've taught in a number of schools and you have 48 minutes before a student is shuttled off to the next concept, it's simply not how we learn. Research has proven that you need dedicated time to focus on concepts. If you were to ask anyone, when is the time that you learn the most? People go and do a deep dive into what interests them most and they read everything. You don't read and then quickly change to a completely another subject that you're not interested in. So 
the question around why do schools have such a hard time? It's simply the historical artifact of the way that schedules work, the way that assessment works, the way that um, we understand learning and achievement. And those things really need to change in order for us to get closer to what we all know real learning looks like. I want to put to the side this idea of, of uh, um, achievement and learning and ask you about where we're going after this experience of remote learning. And I bring up my kid in, in some of the things that I've written and the people I've talked to who is academically can be very strong if he's interested, but if he's not interested at all, he just doesn't want to do anything. Uh, and, and he doesn't achieve by the standards that are given to him, whatever those mean. But I've noticed that when he is able to work on the modules that are given to him during the remote learning time, he's actually done a lot more than he ever did in class because he could do it whenever he wants. He can do it for as long as he wants or as short as he wants. And, and this just goes to show that, that, you know, exactly what you're saying, that putting people in 48 minute slots is completely counter-natural. But what do you think, if anything, will change when we go back to physical school? Some people say it's a new normal, the world has changed forever, and others say, well, hold on a second, we're just going to go back to the same anyway once we get a vaccine. What are your thoughts on this? It's another really good question, and I think similar to the pandemic of racism, it's really how dedicated uh, we are to the belief that something needs to change right now. I know, and I've dedicated my life to making those things happen. So right now I'm very hopeful around that. I think remote learning has taught us that the vast majority of content and activities and tasks that we give to young people are based on memorization and not engaging to them. And so when you remove an in-person level of accountability, and I would go so far as to say compliance, it's very hard to get a young person to comply when you're not in the same room and they're not interested. Um, I also never want this to be an opportunity to gang up or bash on young people. I think if you were to ask an adult to do work that had no relation to their life, I think they would have a similar response and simply not engage in it in a meaningful way. Um, so the question becomes, how do we create schools that are more student-centered and that allow students to explore their own interests in meaningful guided ways to fundamentally change what the academic experience is in schools? And is that possible, do you think, in the public school system? Does it have to be moved or spearheaded by independent schools? What are some of the mechanisms? Because clearly, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be more difficult in public schools, but that's where most of the kids go. It's interesting that you would say that it's more difficult in public schools, because I'm not sure that's true. The vast majority of public school students in America are not directly and immediately uh, engaging in higher education. And, and as a result of that, I don't think there is as much pressure. When you have high achieving students in independent schools that are really jockeying to go to the greatest uh, educational institutions in the world, I think there's a lot more pressure there to remain uh, tied to the status quo. So I actually see a lot more hope in the public school system to say, uh, let's do something different. And I really think there are two main things that will allow that to happen. The first one is 
the continued hiatus of standardized tests. Um, we uh, in America have basically at every level agreed that standardized tests are inequitable due to COVID-19. I would certainly make the argument that they're inequitable in general and therefore they should be abandoned, as well as the requirement for seat time, which has allowed remote learning to count as as academic learning time. So I think those are two things that if we can move away from and say we need evidence of student learning and the student gets to choose what that evidence is, we can really move this conversation forward. And going back to this idea of learning and achievement, achievement to me seems like an externally, um, oftentimes, at least in the schools that we have, it's externally determined. I mean, we could have our own internal uh, idea of what achievement is, but unfortunately, grades don't necessarily reflect that. It goes back to what you're saying about the evidence. What do you think needs to change? And, and, and you've covered this a little bit, but maybe you can go a little bit more in depth. What needs to change so that achievement is something that becomes meaningful to the student rather than, I mean, the hoops that they have to go through sometimes and, and having to play the game of school? For us to have meaningful change, we need to move away from standardized assessments. They are simply not doing what they were originally intended to do. They simply reflect uh, students' socioeconomic background and ability to play the game, as you earlier mentioned. One of the things that I would consistently advocate is public displays of knowledge. So I used to teach at a high school where we had, in order to graduate, you had students were required to perform, uh, excuse me, present for 90 minutes on a set of three projects uh, that they had completed during their high school years. And those presentations were open to the public. So not only parents, but also community members. And so if you did an internship in a museum, your internship supervisor from the museum would be there. Um, public displays uh, of, of knowledge and achievement are simply a better way uh, of measuring what it is we want to measure is the ability to communicate, the ability to show progress, and the ability to impact the world around us. What is it that you did? What did you do? Um, those are the questions that we need to ask, not whether you have the ability to write another five paragraph essay, which is an outdated mode of communication that no one uses. And I completely agree with you. And I think that anybody who works in the private sector, in the public sector, in any sector knows that you write an email that's more than a couple paragraphs and you're done. Nobody's going to read it. And it's more effective to learn how to write bullet points in many ways than a five paragraph essay. Um, you just have to know your audience and, and the purpose of your communication. And why that's not being taught in schools is, is, is in my mind, criminal. Um, these, these survival skills for influence, these survival skills for getting things done, uh, and they're stuck in these old, these old patterns. Absolutely. Let me just jump in right there because why do we give the written word on an actual piece of paper the primacy that it has? That it has? Why can't we say, write a script for a video on this topic, right? It is an example of writing and they're simply presenting it in another medium. And this longstanding 
ball and chain, for lack of a better term, to you are going to write words on a piece of paper, have it read by a single adult uh, with various degrees of competency, and they're going to assess you. It doesn't have to be that way. We all know that that's a bad system. So what is a different system? And we do this in our own life. I know that if I need help on my computer to figure out how to learn, for instance, some kind of you know app or whatever it might be, I certainly don't read the manual. I go on YouTube and I have somebody show me on a screen. It's just so much more effective for the purpose that, that you want. And we have to, again, uh, figure out what, what, what the medium that makes sense is. I, I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, and I'll jump in. My, one of my favorite sayings is because the internet. We teach most classrooms exist as if the internet does not exist. And it's simply irresponsible and inexcusable that instructional design takes place with that happening, right? The idea that plagiarism is a problem is not a problem with the students. It's a problem with the instructional design. And it's so frustrating when uh, I work with uh, schools and districts, and they continually try to say, you know, you can't use the internet. You can't use the internet. If you had a professional in today's world who attempted to do their job without using the internet, that would be completely and totally unacceptable. And we need to begin to teach that through school. What about teachers themselves? Teacher colleges have been training teachers to do things a certain way for so many years. What will it take for teachers to be comfortable making some of these changes, implementing some of these changes, or even better, suggesting some of these changes? What are some of the barriers and opportunities that you see moving forward? Because at the end of the day, the teachers have to be on board. As someone who worked deeply with a number of teacher educator programs, this is really the million dollar question. This is so difficult to do, and it's going to take nothing short of a paradigm shift. And the paradigm is between expert and learner. When we understand that a teacher no longer needs to be a content expert, but rather a facilitator of learning, that then and only then is the change gonna be allowed to happen. You can go online right now and get any mathematical instruction through Khan Academy online that you need at every level of K-12 mathematics instruction. As someone who's visited, close to a thousand classrooms over the last 20 years, most of that instruction is better than the instruction happening in classes. So my question to you is, do you want the best instruction for, for your child? And if so, why are they not allowed to engage in online learning? And taking that forward even, the math that they have to do, the algorithmic learning or learning of algorithms is, is in itself passe. There's no point. They have to learn how to use machines to solve problems. You can take pictures now of equations and your phone will solve it for you. Why do you need to go through the algorithms? Just know how to use the machine to solve a problem in a more creative way. That's such a good point around the way in which technology solves most of our challenges. And so what we need to do is what are the problems that you and your community facing right now? And how do we use technology to help solve them? We can no longer have siloed academic classrooms attempting to answer questions based on rote memorization. What do you think is the most important thing that we should teach our kids? What do you think the most important thing inside and outside the classroom that we can do to help 
kids, and I don't want to limit this to the word students because that puts them in a certain power relationship, but kids in general, what can we do to help them be successful in the future? Whatever success means to them. I'd answer that by saying, whatever it is that students tell us they want to learn, that's what we should be teaching them. Why do we get to decide? We should teach them their voice and their choice matters. With an infinite amount of information that could be studied, learned, and appreciated, why are we the ones that get to decide? Again, this is a historical relic. 500 years ago, when there was, you needed to learn a discrete set of skills because 90% of the population was illiterate, it makes sense. But now when the world is different, and again, because the internet exists, we can listen to our students. And when they say, I'd like to focus on this, we can follow them and support them and facilitate learning experiences that values their desires. And these are very good points. And I've been struggling with a certain amount of, you know, the, the actual implementation of this at a primary school level, uh, elementary school, because while high school students might have had more exposure, although never enough, because we never have enough experience and exposure to, to new things. What do we do with kids in elementary school who are seven, six, eight, to provide them with the freedom to explore, but at the same time, expose them to all these different things that they may not have been exposed to, particularly in poorer communities who might not have the, the, the opportunities to, to go out and, and go on vacations and go on these fabulous trips or, or go to fine dining or whatever it might be. How do we solve this problem at elementary school? Where is the balance? Well, thankfully, there are a lot of good models out there. I think the Montessori model, particularly at that age, presents uh, an appropriate approach to learning. Um, I think the next generation science standards that extend as far down as primary school around focusing on phenomena in order to understand the world around us. There, it is possible to do inquiry-based learning at any level. Um, and it's simply, I'm not arguing that this is going to be an easy transition, but the models out there do exist. And it is possible to structure inquiry-based learning around student interest at any grade level. But what about the idea that we have a certain responsibility to inculcate, to teach kids a certain amount of civic values that have to do with what we can see as the betterment of society? So with right now people in the street against racism, we should have an agenda or a mission to uh, provide um, uh, learners with um, uh, ideas about that, that would fight racism. Um, Again, I, I don't have an answer to this because this would be about putting values in the school and then it opens up a whole you know, sh whole problem of whose values, right? Because for so many years, it was not necessarily um, the values that might bring together humanity in itself. But what do we do about the value system to, to create a civic base within um, uh, the future generations? How, how does that balance happen between letting kids explore and at the same time guiding them in a direction that we may or may not want? Listen to the students. That is a consistent answer when people ask me questions along these lines. A lot of what you just described is an adult-based value system. And we need to move away from that. We need to listen to the students and say, what are the problems and challenges in your community right now? Now, I think, and 
history has shown us that the youth is very good at identifying what the challenges and problems in society are better than the adults consistently. Um, and so I think that just going ahead and listening to them and then saying, okay, what's the problem? Who are, who are, who are organizations that are working in this space? What is their plan? What do you think the best plan is? How do you want to get this word out? Um, I think it's no small mistake that a number of the protests in America have been organized by high school students. There was a 10,000 person march in Nashville organized by students. There was a 5,000 person march in Oakland organized by high school students. Um, I, you know, this fear that they're going to go off in, in a direction that we don't want them to, uh, speaks of a certain level of fear, a fear of losing control of what we're able to teach our students. And I think that that's a healthy fear and we need to let it go. The students will be able to lead the way and we should let them lead the way. And I'm certainly not disagreeing with you whatsoever. I'm throwing it out there in order to maybe, you know, because this is a lot of the debate that's out there and some people might have those reactions. Someone might come and say, okay, but that works in Oakland and that works in, in, in uh, Nashville. But what about smaller rural communities, for instance, that are much less um, uh, diverse from, from, a, from a socioeconomic or, or, or ethnic standpoint? Um, how do we go and um, talk to some of these uh, uh, kids who haven't necessarily been exposed to the racial issues because they're predominantly white? It's a great question. And I would answer that by I think that those students in homogenous communities and in rural communities have problems that they need to solve. And the act of valuing what it is they have to say and engaging with them is enormously valuable. What we're seeing and what I've seen firsthand is a high school class of 92 in ninth grade graduates a class of 56. I've seen that consistently over and over in small towns in Montana and small towns in Alaska and small towns in Washington state. And so what we really need to say is a lot of these students aren't getting the things that we want now. They're not having the experience to, that we want to the extent that they are dropping out. Many of them in a lot of these small rural towns, as soon as they're 16, so that this idea that we might be missing out on, on some of what we as adults believe are the key ideas, they're already missing out on that. And so, again, the model is broken. No, and I appreciate what you're saying completely. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad that you have brought this up. And the reason the backstory to my questions are simply that I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said that the, the goal of education should be to make everything about gender, race, uh, uh, equality, equity, whatever, you know, whatever words that were there in that area, uh, in order to make sure that we have a, a future society that that um, moves in a direction that is better for everyone, which I had, I was uncomfortable with that simply because, just like you say, I think that is an adult uh, position to force certain issues on students. But at the same time, I'm struggling with this simply because um, we also have this idea of civic notion. Um, I don't have the answers to this. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of letting the kids take care of their communities, what's immediate to them, what's real to them, the struggles that they have, and that the system is broken. You're absolutely right. And the results are very clear. If 
half the kids aren't graduating, we have a problem. I think what you're making me think of right now is, and this is part of the work that I'm attempting to do right now, is the ability to connect students outside the walls of their schools. So really the design question is, how are we connecting students and teachers across time and space? Uh, And I think this is really going to be the next innovation so that when the small rural school in Montana identifies, uh, for instance, the the copper mining impacts of their community uh, that results in enormous amounts of environmental destruction, and if they're able to give a presentation to a group in Oakland that's set up right next to an oil refinery, there are natural connections that those students are going to be able to make that cross not only the content, but also a lot of the issues that we want students to do as adults. Again, they need to participate, they need to do something, and we need to allow them the freedom, even if it's not what we would want, to be to follow their own path. I'm 100% with you. And I think that will heal so much simply because by connecting different kinds of communities, it will also show that there are similarities between what we might think are uh, heterogeneous worlds. It, you know, people, blacks, whites, who are in poverty face the same issues and they have a common struggle against some of the systems that are there. Um, and, and, it, and it can bring people together by having these, these, the ability to communicate uh, ac- across regions, be it, yeah, Alaska to Oakland or whatever it might be. You're absolutely right. And just because we don't have evidence of that yet doesn't mean it's not going to work. Um, and the evidence that I have personally been a part of shows me that it consistently does work and that connecting students across time and space increases engagement, increases learning. That when we ask students, are you engaged and are you learning? They answer, yes, I am. Yes, I am. And it opens the whole world to them because they can connect with people who are somewhere else based on their interests rather than having to be forced to do something because the four walls around you dictate that as well. 100% Benjamin. Standardized testing is something that we've talked a little bit about. And if we think about it from a university admissions point of view, the benefit of having SAT for the admissions officer is really that they could just have a cutoff point for a score. Now that doesn't necessarily say anything about the child or um, his or her potential in university or beyond, but that's been typically the case. Now with all these schools that are deciding to make ACT and SAT optional, how do you see universities looking and, and at students and constructing admissions processes around evidence or around the impact that students have? Universities are certainly going through an enormous period of transition right now. And I'm not hopeful around the overall numbers staying the same. Right here in Portland, we've actually had two universities, each over 100 years old, close in the last three years. Um, And I think this is part of a wider trend. Uh, Just yesterday, the University of Alaska system uh, shuttered over 40 disciplines in their entirety, from environmental studies to creative writing. Um, I think that there, particularly in America, but most likely internationally, there's going to be an enormous winnowing of programs that are available. And I see a number of universities shutting down in the next 12 to 24 months. Now, as disappointing as that is, the university that I went to uh, roughly 20 years ago has more than tripled in price. Uh, 
each from a year-over-year perspective. So the idea that students without financial means are going to graduate with close to half a million dollars in debt is simply not a sustainable one. So I think that universities really need to change. From a university admissions standpoint, it's a, it's a problem, but it's also a good problem to have. What's interesting is that the elite universities graduate over 99% of the students that they admit. Now, you can certainly say that, A, they're doing a very good job on deciding who they're admitting, or you can take a counter argument and say, they're probably a lot of the people that they are saying no to, they could also do well. Um, really, I see an overabundance of qualified students who can do well in university. And it's really about status. It's really about rankings that generate reputations and brands around universities. The idea around university admissions is they could admit twice or three times as many students and still have the positive outcomes and the learning that they're doing. And if we think about that, I certainly think that's where the future of higher education is going to go. Now, imagine if MIT, instead of uh, accepting 5,000 students, accepted 50,000 students and the majority of their work was done remotely. It would certainly be beneficial financially for them, and it would certainly increase their prestige around the world to be able to have an MIT education available to more people. And I think that's where the future of higher ed is going to go. What about nano degrees or this idea that you can collect a bunch of nano degrees and design your own educational experience. Do you see that as having a future or is that maybe a a bubble? I think that's a bubble. It's really a cost consideration. I think that a number of universities have had a lot of independent studies. I think those are going to become more, more popular, particularly when we move to a portfolio system. Both at the high school as well as the university level, we should have evidence of student work rather than grades. I know this is a crazy concept, but from a hiring perspective or from a university admissions standpoint, wouldn't you rather see that this student collaborated with a team and organized a student march protesting the death of George Floyd and it attracted 10,000 people rather than them getting a B plus in civics? Those are simply incomparable measures. And because of the internet, those measures are able to be collected and presented both to a university admissions committee or to a hiring committee. And just to add one more thing, to get back to teacher education, we can actually begin to evaluate teachers on their actual teaching performance through the use of video observation. And this is really one of the things that I'm most passionate about. I just want everyone to think about the idea that we're still hiring teachers without evidence of their practice. And this is really one of the elephants in the room that we need to move away from. Now, I love the idea that impact and what students are actually doing is a fantastic way to think about and refocus learning and what happens in schools. But what we have to think about in terms of teachers and in terms of administrators is how to manage parents. Parents, of course, want their kids to grow and learn and and be fulfilled, but they also want them to go in many cases to university. And when we have grades or scores that are quantifiable, parents feel 
comfort in that. They know what a 75 is. They know what an 83 is. They might not necessarily know how that project that helps uh, people eat uh, based on some kind of organic garden or whether or not they've been able to organize uh, some kind of movement, how that's going to get them to university. So the question that parents might be asking is, how do I know my kids are learning? Which is another way of saying or asking, how do I know my kids are achieving and going to get to university? But how do we address the problem with parents not understanding how to create curriculum around impact rather than scores? I think the question that parents are actually asking is, how are they going to move on to the next level that I want them to? Really focused around university admission. because the situation is that students are telling parents right now, this learning is not important. I am not valuing this educational experience. And, and parents are ignoring them because they know the benefits at the end of this educational experience will be as significant as they are. Um, particularly here in America, the reality of not having a college degree is overwhelmingly terrible, for lack of a better word. And particularly for students of color, when we have the school to prison pipeline as a concept that exists and we have data to support that if they're not getting into institutions of higher education, they are most likely ending up in prison is a terrifying thought. So I don't really think that student, that parents are asking, how can we be sure that they're learning? They're really asking, how can we be sure that they're utilizing the system and gaining the advantages that the system has put out. I think once we change that understanding, we can begin to devise new ways of understanding. And again, listening to the students who are saying, I am learning from this experience. And this goes back to the learning and achievements question that we had earlier. What is achievement? And when we have students saying, I know that I've learned when I, get a good, when I get a good grade on an assessment, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the purpose of learning and assessment is. I, I completely agree. And, uh, and I do think that in any kind of, of uh, conversation that we have culturally within a school about what is our culture, what is our purpose, we have to include students in this because ultimately they are the ones who are most concerned about their own future. Um, they're the ones who have been told that they have to get into such and such school. They have been t- that they need good grades and, and they get this from, from very young and we have to get their buy-in uh, about how to do things differently so that they feel comfortable with these changes. Let me jump in really quickly. Let me just jump in really quickly and say, in no other human experience do we completely ignore the experience of the participants as we do in education. It's really unbelievable that we don't listen. We don't have surveys. We don't have focus groups. We don't have year-end roundups that engage students and teachers into what was the quality of this learning experience rather than how did you do on a standardized test that will give us results sometime in the middle of next year so that they're actually impossible to implement in a realistic instruction informative way. It's really dumbfounding that we're still in this position and not taking advantage of the technologies and opportunities available. Tell me about some of the projects that you have um, in terms of 
working with schools across communities. I know that you are working perhaps on uh, on getting kids to collaborate across geographies. Uh, do you do you want to share some of those ideas with us or some of these these plans? Absolutely. So this is a long term. Uh passion project of mine with the design question of how do we connect students across time and space? And my answer to that question is a network online publication. So imagine that the writing projects that students create are shared online and available to a network, say eight to 10 schools of other students. So that when so that when students create something, and part of this is the ability for students to choose whatever subject they want, and then also present that information in whatever format they want, whether it be writing, whether it be photos, whether it be video, whether it be podcasts, what are students, A, creating? And then B, the more important question, how are students learning from each other across time and space? And so right now, and I think this is a wonderful opportunity with distance learning, coming to the forefront, I actually had this as a more long-term goal of over the next three to five years, but I'm actually starting next year with a pilot program of students across the world engaging in written, and uh, we're actually using the term product, creating products to share online and then interacting with each other with shared educational experiences. So I couldn't be more excited about, about that, and I really think it represents the next wave of what's going to happen. Because I always ask, why aren't students interacting with anyone else besides the students in their classroom? And that would go a long way in terms of building those communities that we talked about. Um, I think, I think it's, a, it's a tremendous idea. Listen, Trevor, thank you so much for being on our show. Um, I'm going to ask you one last open-ended question. If there is anything you would like uh, the world of education or beyond education or parents or whatever it might be uh, to think about uh, over the next uh, few months, few years, whatever it might be, what would it be? In order to reimagine education, we need to listen to our students and allow them the freedom to explore their passions wherever that path goes. We need to transform the teaching profession into a facilitation profession. And in other words, we need to allow teachers to support students with whatever their passions might be. And I just hope that we get more models from a classroom perspective, from a school level perspective, and from a district level perspective on what that can look like. And I certainly don't have all the answers, but I certainly know a number of people doing interesting work. From Big Picture Learning, which is an international organization, from a lot of the work in independent schools across the world, the Green Schools Network in particular, to Generation Schools, which has a fascinating differentiated model, to the Modern Classroom Projects out of Washington, D.C. There's a lot of exciting work that's happening all over, and we need to discover it and invest in it and begin to turn the page from a system of rote memorization to a system of empowering all learners to realize their potential. Thanks, Trevor. It was a real pleasure having you. Couldn't have been more fun. Thanks so much. Thank you again for listening to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. This is your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. I really want to thank Trevor for spending so much time uh, speaking to me and giving us such wonderful things to think about and insights. This is our last 
broadcast from Saudi Arabia, unless there's an unforeseen circumstances that uh, prolongs our stay here. I want to thank everybody that I've met as well in Saudi Arabia, a wonderful country with wonderful people that has really opened my eyes to so many fascinating uh, pieces of culture, customs, and uh, just ways of living. Uh, looking forward to our next adventure, and uh, please read our blog, listen to our other episodes of podcast, and like us on iTunes. In the meantime, we will see you soon, and hopefully everyone is safe and thriving uh, in spite of some of the challenges that are out there. Bye.